Hello, Bethel Church family. It is yet another Sunday this week that we are unable to gather together for worship. And though we are unable to all be in the same place at the same time worshiping the Lord, I give thanks that we are still able to worship in some way. It has been a great privilege and joy to be able to share with you the Word of God preached during this time when we are apart. And it is also a joy to pray with you and to pray on your behalf as we lift up prayers to God. So let us come to the Lord in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are good and we thank you that you hear us. We thank you that you O God, have not been closed during this time of quarantine and shut down, but that we still have access to your throne room by the grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come, O Heavenly Father, before your throne in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring requests to you, knowing that you hear them and that by your power, your wisdom and your mercy, you answer our prayers. And so, God, in this time of the coronavirus crisis, we do pray that you would bring healing to those who are sick, that you would heal those who have been infected with the virus and that you would comfort them in their pain and distress. And most of all, that you would give them hope in Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We pray, O Lord, that you would please protect those who are vulnerable the elderly and those with pre-existing conditions, we ask, O oh God, that you would protect them from getting infected, protect them from this virus, and help them to trust in you, O oh Lord. God, we continue to pray that you would provide wisdom for the leaders of our government at the national, the state, and the local levels, and also for other countries around the world. Bless our leaders with an attitude of service and with patience and wisdom and discernment to know how to lead people forward. And we pray the same, O oh God, for our church leaders to help us to look forward for the time when we are able to gather together and how that might need to be different for a short amount of time. We pray, O oh God, that you would please give wisdom in that way. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would support those who are struggling in this time and the many ways things have been affected. We pray for those who are struggling and out of work and in financial distress, that you would provide for them, that you would show yourself as a great provider, O oh Lord, and that you would make yourself known to them. We pray also for those who are lonely and confined to their homes with minimal social interaction, that you would be present with them, O oh God, by your spirit, and that you would let them know that you never leave or forsake us. And so, Lord, comfort them. We pray also for those in home situations that are not good, with brokenness and strife between spouses or parents and children or children and parents, O oh God, we ask that you would please provide peace in those situations, that you would protect the vulnerable, and that you, O oh God, would work wonders in reconciliation during this time. Lord, we do ask that you would help us to continue to be the body of Christ, though we are separated in space. We ask that you would help us to serve you 
and to care for one another. I thank You for the servants within this church who have been reaching out and caring for those in need, who have been offering words of encouragement and lifting up prayers. Lord, help us to continue to serve one another in our efforts to serve You. And Lord, we ask that You would continue to drive us back to prayer and to rely on You in all things. And so we pray together yet apart the words that Jesus taught His disciples when they asked Him how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As some of you know, one of my favorite book and movie series is The Lord of the Rings. It is a grand fantasy adventure that spans three books, which were also adapted into three movies. The story is enthralling as you journey with the characters across a vividly created world of dwarves, elves, goblins, and wizards. It is the kind of story you don't want to leave. And in fact, you may find it hard to leave because just when you think the story is going to end there are still a few more loose ends to tie up. When the bad guy is finally defeated, you flip through the book and you see there are still five more chapters. How can that be? Watching the movie gives you the same experience as the screen fades to black numerous times only to reveal another scene instead of the closing credits. Each scene seemed like the perfect place to end the movie but the director had yet another loose end to tie up. The book of Isaiah is like that as we arrive at chapter 56. Everything in the book had been leading up to chapter 53, which described the servant of the Lord suffering and dying for the sins of God's people. Chapters 54 and 55 then described the good news implications of the servant's death. We left the end of chapter 55 with the promise of a renewed creation, a perfect, hopeful image to end the book with. But then you look and find there are 11 more chapters in Isaiah. What more is there to say? Wasn't chapter 55 a good stopping point? Did Isaiah not have an editor who could give him a word count? Well, as we'll see over the next few weeks, Isaiah had a few loose ends to tie up with these closing chapters. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 12 this week. So hopefully you have your Bibles with you at home as you open up to the book of Isaiah. And I'll be reading Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. 
who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to Him besides those already gathered. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Amen. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, we do give thanks for Your Word. We thank You, O Holy Spirit, for inspiring it and inspiring the writers to write it in their own time and place. We pray, O God, that You would give us understanding of Your Word. Use me to rightly expound and preach the Word and give us ears to hear, open hearts and minds to receive what You have to say to us this week. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the big question I want us to be asking ourselves as we look at Isaiah chapter 56 is this. Do our lives reflect the beliefs we profess? Do our lives reflect the beliefs we profess? And today in Isaiah 56, we're going to look at two rather obvious beliefs that Isaiah talks about and consider how well our lives reflect them. As we consider why Isaiah 56 goes on, instead of stopping at Isaiah 55, Isaiah was understandably concerned that God's people would not respond correctly to the good news of their coming salvation. He feared that like previous generations, the Jews in exile would be saved by God's mighty power only to fall back into sinful rebellion. He was worried that upon hearing the promise that God would send the servant of the Lord who would save them, that they would not change their ways, that they would simply wait for the servant to show up and fix everything. 
they would presume that God made a promise and would have to keep it no matter what they did. So the Lord instructs Isaiah to correct this potential misunderstanding by explaining the obvious implication of his gracious salvation. God's saved people are supposed to live as God's holy people. Chapter 56 starts with this idea. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Two summarizing commands are given. Keep justice and do righteousness. Those are some very important words for Isaiah and really for all of Scripture. One commentator helpfully defines and distinguishes them by writing, Righteousness denotes the principle of right action, whereas justice is the embodiment of that principle. To give an example, righteousness is the principle of loving our neighbor, and justice is the expression of that love in the appropriate way and at the appropriate time. Both are important. To be principled without following through is useless. To try to do the right action with misguided motives is dangerous. The combination of these two terms summarizes the very basic obedience Judah had been lacking and which Isaiah had been calling for throughout his book. And now they are called to keep those commands in light of God's coming salvation. At the time Isaiah's readers received these words, Jesus had not yet come. The Messiah had not yet accomplished his sacrificial work, but they were called to respond to the promise of his work, and their response was obedience. Obedience is the natural response to salvation. Just as Israel was given the Ten Commandments after being, slave from, being saved from slavery in Egypt, so now God's people are being told to do justice and righteousness because of the salvation to be accomplished by the Messiah. Now this in the Bible is kind of obvious stuff. The point of saving people was not to let them keep living in sin, Salvation includes a change of life now, being freed from our slavery to sin and rebellion against God so that we can joyfully obey His commands. This obedience is good for us because it is what we were made for. Isaiah goes on to say, Blessed is the man who does this. It is the good life to live in obedience to the Lord through justice and righteousness. Human beings are meant to embody God's righteous principles in lives of justice. Now, that doesn't mean these good works and obedience earn people's salvation. No, they are simply the evidence of God working in and through us. Justice and righteousness are the fruit of holding fast to the covenant, a phrase that is used three times in this chapter. God pledges His love in a covenant, a binding relationship. And we hold fast to that pledge, knowing that it isn't our goodness that keeps us in right standing with God. 
It is His steadfast love and mercy towards sinners like us that keep us right with Him. One expression of holding fast to the covenant is desiring to please God, the very God we're in relationship with. And we do that through justice and righteousness. But was this covenant available to all people? Who could be saved by the work of the servant? Who was included in God's salvation? As we read through the Old Testament, we see repeated examples of exclusion. God chose Jacob, but not Esau. He chose the people of Israel from among all the other nations. He restricted service in the tabernacle and temple to the people from the tribe of Levi. And only priests were able to perform certain rituals. Other people were further cast out from the presence of the Lord. Our Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy 23 highlights the two examples Isaiah gives in this chapter. There were those who had physical deformities, including castration like a eunuch, and they were not permitted in the assembly of God's people. Some foreigners, like the Ammonites and the Moabites, were also not permitted among God's people. These external markers of separation symbolized the purity needed to be in the presence of a holy God. Yet Isaiah tells us because of the salvation accomplished by the Messiah, these external factors would no longer keep people from God's presence. An inclusive invitation is extended in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Isaiah goes on to show that these former outcasts are now welcome if they hold fast to the covenant. The covenant is available to them, and they are invited to come to the waters and drink, as we read last week in Isaiah 55. They are invited to hold fast to God's steadfast love and mercy, and they and other outcasts are gathered by God into His people. As modern readers living in 2020, we struggle to appreciate the radical nature of these inclusive invitations. For the Jewish people, their lives were shaped by the ideas of clean and unclean, of separation and holiness. They were not permitted to intermarry with foreign people. They were not permitted to eat certain foods or to eat with certain people. The idea that anyone could be in God's presence would have been laughable. We may look down on the priest and the Levite in the story of the Good Samaritan, but the Jewish audience would have understood that those holy people could not make themselves unclean with such a battered and bruised man. They were especially set apart for God. And so Isaiah's audience, his original Jewish audience, would have found these invitations to the eunuch and the foreigner inconceivable even though these invitations seem so obvious to us. We take it as a given that all people are welcome to come and believe in Jesus. 
We want people from every nation to join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, as verse 6 says. We want people to choose the things that please God, as verse 4 says. We want all people to join in the houses of prayer around the world and joyfully praise Jesus. We know that God does not turn people away because they are from a certain nation or have some deformity or some terrible sin in their past. We know that all who repent and trust in Jesus will be saved. But just because we know all these things to be true doesn't mean we actually live that way. Do our lives truly reflect these beliefs about how we should live as God's holy people and how we should welcome the outcasts of society to join God's family? In other words, do we walk the talk? Or do our lives reveal that there is truth to the charge that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites? Those are hard questions. But Isaiah wants us to ask ourselves those questions. The tone changes abruptly in verse 9 at the end of chapter 56 as Isaiah calls the wild beasts to come and devour God's people because they are easy prey. What makes them such easy prey? They are like a bunch of sleeping dogs with full bellies. Isaiah is calling out his own people and especially the leaders of God's people for not practicing what they profess to believe. Instead of keeping justice and doing righteousness, they are only searching for their own gain. In verse 12, they say, Come, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The people whom God had chosen to be holy are living as drunken gluttons, presuming that life will go on and on so that they can have their fill of good things. Is that what we live for? Does that picture of a dog gobbling up its bowl of food more closely resemble our lives than the picture of justice and righteousness? Are our lives guided by the principles of righteousness? Do our bellies guide us? Or does the pursuit of God's glory guide us? Do we seek first to meet our own needs? Or do we look to love our neighbor? Maybe we have the right principles, but they simply don't carry over into action. Does our love of neighbor exist only in our thoughts, but never in our actions? Do we only send thoughts and prayers to people in need? Or do we act with justice out of this impulse of righteousness? Have we even considered what it would look like to embody the principles of righteousness that we profess? If we did, we would see that this pursuit of justice is sure to put us in contact with the outcasts of our culture, like the eunuchs and foreigners of Isaiah's day. 
Are we willing to serve those on the margins who may make us uncomfortable? Are our eyes open to see the hurting and the lost who need the good news of Jesus? Or are we like sleeping watchmen, content to let the dangers of sin and hell prey on our neighbors? Do we neglect to extend the same gracious forgiveness to the eunuchs and foreigners of our day, assuming they will not want to hear it? Do we fail to bark like a watchdog when we see our fellow man and woman going to their doom apart from Christ? Do we truly believe that anyone who holds fast to the covenant will be saved? And is our heart moved by a zeal to share the good news with those who are lost? Or is our gospel zeal hindered by our aversion to the outcasts and the lost souls around us? When we meet a transgender person, do we react with disgust or disagreement instead of graciously loving them and extending to them the good news of Jesus Christ? Do we earnestly pray for them to receive from God an everlasting name that will provide a secure identity for their lost soul? When we meet a Muslim neighbor, do we react with suspicion and skepticism, assuming that they are a lost cause for Christ? Or do we see them as an outcast that God can gather into His people and love the name of Jesus? Do our lives reflect the covenant we claim to hold fast to? The answer is probably no. Or at least not as much as we would like. Just asking these questions causes me to reflect on my own failures to live as I should. Too often I've chosen my belly and my desires instead of the things that please the Lord. Too often I've been asleep on the task of witnessing to my friends and family who don't know Jesus. Too often I have not sought the good of those who are uncomfortably different from me. Too often I've been guilty of not practicing what it is I preach. But in spite of my sinful failures, I am still holding fast to that covenant. I hold fast to God's pledge of faithful love for His sinful people. I hold fast knowing that in God's perfect justice and righteousness, my sins have been punished and atoned for in the death of Jesus. I hold fast knowing that Jesus was cast out from the Father's presence so that a sinful outcast like me could be gathered into God's people. I hold fast knowing that the Spirit of the One who perfectly kept justice and did righteousness now indwells me and is conforming me to the image of my Savior. And so I seek to tie up the loose ends in my life. The places where my beliefs are not reflected in my attitudes, my words, and my actions. See, the Jews listening to Jesus tell the story of the Good Samaritan surely believed that it was right to love their neighbor. And they believed they should embody that command. But Jesus' words revealed a gap between belief and practice.
Christians, let us confess that we also have that gap. Let us confess our failure to live what we believe and let us take comfort in knowing that God has saved us to be His holy people. And so let us strive to keep justice and do righteousness so that our lives better reflect the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You save us from our sins and that the principles of righteousness You give us are indeed good. But we pray, O God, that You would shine Your light of truth on us this week. Shine it on us, O God, to show where that gap exists, where our beliefs are not being revealed and reflected in our practice. God, show us those things not to condemn us or cause us to despair, but to drive us back to You in humble confession of our sins, seeking to be forgiven in Christ and to be made holy through the power of the Spirit. Lord, give us that empowering grace so that we can keep justice and do righteousness. Give us the vision of what it looks like for these righteous principles to be embodied in justice in our lives, in our church, and in our community. And Lord, we desire to reflect You and Your goodness and Your love and Your holiness instead of reflecting the hypocrisy that so easily clings to us. And so, Lord, help us reflect Jesus in all that we do. In His name we pray. Amen.